0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Wellbeing. I'm Iris Nichols. This week is Mental Health Week and with me today I have three people in the studio. The first is a gentleman who does have a mental illness. The second is his carer, Lynn. And thirdly, I'll be talking to Joanne and Joanne is a director of Arathme. But Chris, we'll start with you and thank you for coming in.
1: Hello Iris, how are you?
0: Are you a Novocastrian? I'm not. And where were you born?
1: I was born in Ireland many, many years ago.
0: You came from Ireland to Australia?
1: N- no, I lived in, I went from Ireland to London at the age of nine.
0: Now, you told me before we came into the program that you were abused as a child, and that started at about the age of seven. Seven
1: years of age, yes.
0: And what happened to send you to England at the age of nine?
1: Well... Um, originally, um, I was living with um, my aunt and uncle, who the uncle abused me for that two and a half years I was there. Um, my aunt, who was going to take me to London, had just got married, and she said she couldn't take me till she established herself in London. So when she got established, she then came and got me, came over from my, from London and picked me up and took me back to London to live.
0: And where were your parents at this stage?
1: Mum and my my mum and dad. My my, my mum had died when I was four and a half of be tuberculosis. She was only 31 when she died. I was four and a half when she died. My father, unfortunately, was a chronic alcoholic, so he was never around. Three, we we're three of us. There was five boys who died, and I have two other brothers.
0: And are they in Australia?
1: No, one is, we have two in Australia, and we've got another brother in London.
0: When you came over to London, yes. or when you went to London, yes. and at the age of nine, yes. and you lived with the aunt. My aunt, yes. And then... At what age did, you, did that situation change?
1: Well, it, it, it fluctuated because what happened was when I was with her at the age of 11, uh, my father um, wasn't paying maintenance for me in any, at any way. They asked for money from him. He went to the family law court in London and told them that I was un- uncontrollable. He, I wouldn't stay with anybody. So I was made a ward of the state. Um, so I was put in an orphanage at the age of 11 till the age of 16.
0: And what happened when you got to sixteen?
1: Well, at the age of sixteen, I decided they, I had to come out of the orphanage then, and I had to get myself. Um, I had a welfare officer till I was eighteen, but they gave me. Um, I had to get, get myself a job. I got myself a job as an assistant projectionist in in London, and then I um, managed to try to cope with that and got accommodation for myself. So it was very difficult.
0: And you said that when you were sixteen, your whole world sort of crashed around you.
1: The age of 16 and a half, yeah, my, my whole world had become an absolute nightmare. I'd become very, very withdrawn, very depressed, um, didn't like myself, had no, had a really felt very bad, lowest self-esteem about who I was. And then I tried to, I took a handful of medication, alcohol, and was found in the, my lodgings in London. My landlady found me. I woke up in the hospital 24 hours later after being a, unconscious very confused young man, actually, to be honest.
0: While you were in the hospital, how long were you there? Three weeks. And what sort of treatment did you get?
1: Um, just on medication, and they thought that I was going to do it again, so that's why they kept me for the three weeks. So they, I think they, they trusted me to come, to come home, and they kept me in hospitalisation for that time.
0: And what happened to your job at that stage?
1: Well, they the manager for that job came to see me, and I told him the truth. Um, he well, he found out anyway, but he wanted to know what such a, a young man wanted to kill himself. why, why the tragedy? Why want to do, do such something like that? And I said, I don't know. I just don't know. I can't. I can't give him an I can I don't know myself. So I couldn't tell him, you know, mm-hmm. what was going on. But I, be, I became very, very withdrawn and and didn't really like who I was.
0: And how long did you stay with that job?
1: About eight months, because the money the money situation was pretty chronic. I mean, I was only getting four pound four and nine a week wages, and paying £3.10 for bed and breakfast. So you could just imagine what that did for me. There wasn't much left over. wasn't for much left over for, for, no. for food and clothes.
0: So where did you go from there?
1: Well, I went to work for a furniture f- shop for a while. Um, that was really good. I went there for um, another, say, 12 months and got more money, more wages. Then, because I looked like um, deaf warmed up, the welfare officer came to see me, and I was like a rake. I was skinny as a rake. And um, they gave me five, they, the welfare officer gave me five pounds ten shillings a week to make me get back on track to buy clothes and, and buy food. So I had that situation, had that help. And that was really good to be helped like that. Then I, after that, I went and got myself a job at the um, hospital as a trolley, trolley person at, at the hospital, which was great. I enjoyed that. That was good.
0: So what were your duties there?
1: Taking patients to theatre and taking patients to x-ray or whatever they need. The patients need to go mm-hmm. transport, whatever they need. And I would do it. You know, it was great.
0: And what was your mental health like at that time? Not stage?
1: good, not good. It was, um, I had trouble with my mental illness for quite, quite a number of years. I've never really um, got the help that I needed, never got the medication, it never was really diagnosed properly. And that was, that was the thing that we need to look at today, what the diagnosis about people not being diagnosed in, in, their, in our community, about what, where they are.
0: Do you think that this is still going on? That people are being misdiagnosed?
1: Well, I've only just found out recently my diagnosis. So I mean, and I'm 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 nearly sixty. So I mean, what what does that say about life? And what does it say about about mental illness in our community?
0: When you left London, where did you go?
1: When I left London, um, I came to a, a wonderful country called Aussie. It was down under. It was quite a long way, yeah. twelve thousand kilometres away. And I flew over. I was a ten pound pom. So I flew out for, from United Kingdom to. Aussie, and it was the best thing I ever did because I was, in a way, I was, was running away to come away, get away from the past, and it was, for me, it was a good thing, I was only 22 years of age, and I thought, I've got, a, you know, I've got an opportunity to have a good, a new future, mm-hmm. a new life, and I, I took it with both, both hands and decided I was going to make something of my life.
0: And What did you do when you arrived here? Well,
1: when I first arrived. I actually um, I arrived on Anzac Day of all, of all days. It was a Saturday morning. We and we had to we arrived at five o'clock in the morning. We weren't allowed to land for um, till six o'clock. So we're, from a whole hour, we're just circling around, and we saw Newcastle three times. <laughs> and we finally landed. And then we um, I had to, I got accommodation, settled in into that. And then I went um, on the Tuesday looking for a job. And on Wednesday, I got a job as a making bed springs. So that was my first job in Australia, making bed springs.
0: And how long did that last? About eight months. Mm-hmm.
1: till I went for the council of Bankstown Council. And that was nice. I enjoyed that, standing on the shovel for a while and doing a bit of work.
0: Officially known as a ganger.
1: A ganger, that's right. And I loved it. I just yeah. loved it. Lovely people and um, nice accept you know, very acceptance, mm-hmm. the Australian people, if you toe the line, put put it this way, you you know, you pull your head in and you stop whinging. You don't start coming out here whinging about this, that and the other. You become part of the Australian culture, mm-hmm. and that's what I did. Um, I just fitted in beautifully.
0: And then you went from the council to where?
1: Um, then I went to, from the council, I went to the hospital, To the, the, mm-hmm. the hospital, yeah. I worked at Prince Henry Hospital, out to the Coast Hospital, right out there at La Perouse.
0: And when did you come to Newcastle?
1: I came to Newcastle nine, eight, nine years ago. Yeah, that was a good thing, a good move.
0: What brought you from Sydney to well, Newcastle? I,
1: well, I had a back injury. I lifted a patient. Uh, unfortunately, they told me he could he could bear weight on one leg. He'd had a stroke. Mm. I took him out for a shower, and he couldn't. He actually fell on top of me, so I saved him, but didn't mm. save my back. Unfortunately, so I was I continued the job, and they gave me redundancy, so and they put me on a disability pension. I've been in Newcastle ever since.
0: And at that stage, what was your mental health like?
1: Well, again, because I lost my job very bad, and I wasn't really looking after myself as far as me- medication. I wasn't taking medication. I thought, I'm just uh, not getting anywhere. And I didn't think at the time medication was doing any good for me. So I, t- I made the decision not to take it, mm. which was a silly thing to do. And I might add, please don't do that. If, you ha- if you've if you been diagnosed with a middleness, illness, please take your medication, guys, because if you don't, you'll end up in hospital, and you'll end up very ill like I did.
0: Mm. So when you came to Newcastle and yes. you were sort of off your medication, yeah, what made you go back on?
1: Well, I had a choice. Did I want to be really ill and and put people through the ringer, basically? Mm-hmm. And my loved ones, my my family shouldn't be put through that. And um, I mean, my family will say. My brother said once. He said to me, I I don't know what to say to you. He said sometimes you just don't listen. You don't want to take take serious with your illness. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, it's my illness. I'll take care of it, mm. and I think sometimes you, you you just get so sick of taking medication because you've got to do it the rest of your life. There's no mm. there's no stop. There's no limit. You have to take the rest of your life, and I think the stigma was a thing that was really getting on my nerves. Mm. People treated me differently. I don't. I'm that different to you because if you have an operation, it's accepted. Mm. That's right? right. It's accepted. That's you have right. appendicitis. Accepted. You have a hernia. It's accepted. Why can't mental illness be accepted? You
0: know? Do you think the that- that mental illness is being better accepted now?
1: A lot better than what it was. But we've still got a long, long way to go. Politicians have got to get their heads right around this. I mean, they, they give us lip service on day of elections and tell us how good they are and how they're going to help us. I yet to see them t- take mental health seriously. We are a poor relation in health as far as I'm concerned. Um, mental health is not taken seriously because... And England and and New Zealand, they pay 6% in Australia for mental health. England and New Zealand pay 12%. Now, where's the difference there? We need to spend more money on mental health and we need to spend more money on the services, like Arafmi. Organisations such as that need to be given money to help people, families who are not very financial and can't Mm -hmm. afford to, to go to places all the time to get the help that they require.
0: Chris, one last question. Do you think that things are improving?
1: Well, in my lifetime, I'm nearly 60 this year, I feel there is slight improvement. With with Joanne's help, with loved ones such as Lynn, great. That's marvellous. That to me is a a real, that's a sunshine part of the life that, you know, Lynn's been looked after. I don't have to keep worrying about Lynn all the time, that Lynn will be looked after regardless of where I'm going with my illness. That's what we need to do. We need to get out there and say, listen, help the community. People like Arafmi and organisations that are actually working for our community, we need to help them first because they will look after people like Lynn and other people that need the help.
0: You're listening to Wellbeing and we're talking about mental illness. My second guest today is Lynn Avery. Lynn is a carer. What was your first
2: idea about how you thought about mental illness? I just think, well, you don't judge people with what they've got and you learn to to deal with that. Did you have any idea of what you might be taking on? Did you find that daunting? Yeah it was daunting at first but now it's it's okay. And how did you come to learn more about it? Well through going to hmm. and uh, and they help you a lot and doing a course on um, on healing does knowing that you've got Arathme and people like yourself, carers like yourself, with a common goal, if you like, do you find it less frightening? Oh, yes, you don't get um, frightened about that, no. How did you actually get involved with Arathme? Well, through Chris, actually, um, because he thought that I probably needed just a little bit of extra help. And did you find it? Oh, yes, found it, yes. Mm. In what way? Well... If I, you know, like sometimes I might feel a little bit down and, you know, you've got that to go to to help mm. you through it. When you say when you feel a bit down, is that do you find the whole thing a bit big? Oh, not actually big, but sometimes, you know, you feel you might be getting pushed away a little bit, but then mm. when you've got something to go to and that will help you. Perhaps we should explain a little at this
0: stage that ARAFME is the Association for Relatives and Friends of People with a Mental Illness. So it's an organisation that's been set up to help people like yourself. Yes, that's true. Chris, tell me, when you first met Lynn, did you expect her to be spending a lot of time with you?
1: Well, yes, I thought that because we talked talked about uh, certain things about my illness to her, she was aware of where I'm going with it. So I haven't kept her, kept her in the dark about anything about my illness.
0: So what other things does Arathme do for Lynn?
1: Well, they, they took her away for a long weekend, for a weekend away with other, with other carers, which is so important because Lynn didn't want to go. And I said, well, you need to do this. You need to go away and be looked after as well, like be, be, be pampered. Because somebody with the illness, um, when a loved one just stays with you all the time, you know, it's not fair to them. They need to be looked after as well. So it's not just about the person that's got the illness. It's about the families as well. We need to think of the families.
0: With Lynn has come in as, for want of a better word, an outsider. Yes. So is there support for the families as well as a carer coming in, as Lynn has done?
1: Well, yes, and I think it's it's in important that we have places like Arafmi looking after loved ones because if we don't, They're going to burn themselves out and they're not going to be able to be able to cope with people like myself with the illness.
0: What is your idea of erathmie? What does it do for people in general in your situation? Well, I can tell
1: you, I can tell you for me with the illness, erathmie means being understanding to people who are in need. That's the most important thing. And the march that I went to last year, I was, I'm five, four and a half. And when I went to the march, I was six foot three because I felt so proud to march in an, in an organization that care about people like myself and families. And that's what it's about families who need to be you know, think mm. seriously about looking after them. Because a lot of families will say, Oh, I'm all right, but they're not really all right. They'll say that just to make it easy for the people who got the illness.
0: Chris, you hear as you have said, that you hid away a lot of your your background. Do you think that the carers also tend to do this and the family do this?
1: Yes. I, Lynn once tried to save me from... Um, she, th- she thought I was, wasn't well. She, did, she She wanted to not tell me, so she wanted to not save, save my feelings. I've said to her, if she's got a problem, I want to know about it. Mm-hmm. Don't try to be protective of where I'm at in my illness because all it does, it makes it worse, and I don't want her to do that.
0: Do you think that families don't say things because they want to be protective bet- towards the person who is sick
1: yes all the time
0: and what does this do for the family relationship
1: makes it hard because i mean i don't i don't want people nursing me moddy coddling me i've got the illness and i'm looking after myself and i'm with my assistance with the support i'm doing fine
0: and do you think there should be more support for people to come more out into the open about it
1: yes the quicker we the quicker we stop the nonsense and, and get rid of the the stigma about mental illness, we'll be a lot better off and we'll be in a better country and the world will be a better place to live in.
0: Lynn, how do you feel about that? Do you think that the encouragement is enough or should there be more encouragement for par- carers? Well,
2: at this stage, I really think that they're doing quite well and more understanding mm-hmm. about it. Yes.
0: You're listening to Wellbeing. I'm Iris Nichols and we're talking today about mental illness, the way it affects the client of the system and the organisations that are behind all of these people. And to talk to me today is Joanne Sinclair. And Joanne is a director of Arafmi Hunter. Joanne, thank you for coming in too. Thank you, Iris. What's the concept of Arafmi? Well,
3: Arafmi, we work with families of um, people with mental illness. We offer them quite a lot of... um, things around support, counselling, education programs and retreats. We also run programs for children that have a loved one with a mental illness. Our service started in 1979 in the Hunter area and it was the first carer support group in this region. It started off very small. Once again, it was two people working in a small room and then it's, it's, it's grown. Yeah, Now we're able to offer a lot more help and support to families
0: you mentioned about children so there are children with parents who have a mental illness that's right so are they able to come with you do they sit as a group of children or do they mix in with all the grown-ups as well
3: no they come as a group of children they are usually referred through the services we get referral through the mental health teams through um, some of the supported recoveries Uh, services and they come in on a Monday afternoon and I run a program and they come in and be with other young children. They're all between the age of eight and 12 and they interact. We do creative work. We also talk about mental illness, um, how it affects them. They talk about their feelings and they feel less alone. They have the opportunity to mix with other children that have a brother or sister, Mm. a parent or a relative with a mental illness.
0: I guess the big thing there is that they are not alone and they, right. they learn very quickly that they're yeah. not alone.
3: That's right, and that's a good feeling for them because they start to hear, and this breaks down a lot of their stigma themselves, it starts to internalise in children when they're young that they feel very isolated, they feel ashamed, or um, different feelings of embarrassment, that they start to learn to work with some of these feelings at a young age.
0: When they get a bit older, say in their late teens and into young adults, does that perception change?
3: Oh, I think if they don't start to work with their feelings at a young age, it internalises into lots of other problems. They themselves can become very depressed from their caring role, especially if they're a child that's at home looking after, they're the only one looking after the parent mm-hmm. with the illness. Um, they become uh, unwell in themselves, so that they get anxiety disorders. Um, sometimes it can lead to other more chronic mental illness in themselves mm-hmm. because they haven't dealt with problems themselves in their lives.
0: You mentioned that the Arathi started off in the Hunter in a very small way. How many people come through your doors in the course of a year, for example?
3: About well, it'd be probably averaging around through the doors about twelve hundred. We some of them drop in just Mm -hmm. for a couple. Some of them are uh, coming into the group programs.
0: Some of them coming for counselling. If they've had counselling, when that time that's usually on a limited time, isn't it? Counselling. Do you do it sort of on six- or eight-week
3: periods? It depends. uh, If they come in for a crisis, it may be uh, just to talk for one on, and then they may be referred to other services. Uh, They may come in for maybe six to eight times, and then they will be referred on to do workshops, Mm. programs. For instance, we've got the Eight Stages of Healing, which Lynn is involved in. That's only just started. That runs for 10 weeks. But that's a healing program that looks at um, things around self-esteem, awareness, -awareness, self-awareness, forgiveness, understanding, challenge. Guilt Mm -hmm. uh, is a big one that family members have. Grief and loss. And it gives them the opportunity to start bringing the focus of their lives back to themselves instead of always focusing on the person that has the illness which in a lot of ways can be quite unhealthy for the carer. They need to look at their own level of healing and Mm. then they're in a much better place to give because they're always giving from an empty place and they need Mm. to recharge their own batteries and fill themselves up first
0: before they can really truly Mm. care. If they do something like your eight eight stages of healing, Mm. when that's finished, do they go away or are they able to come back in and talk and and still keep up that contact
3: oh definitely this is where we will take them on we find that with the eight stages of healing a lot of them start to really bond and connect and become really good friends then we'll take them away on the retreat And a lot of them have already made friendships within the group, so they'll go and have a great weekend away Mm. where we run spiritual workshops. We do lots of walks along the beach. We make journals. We have a lot of fun, a lot of laughter. There's massaging. We massage their feet Mm. and and, and their shoulders, and they they have a really lovely time. They start to unwind. We will also – they will access back into the service again when there's – Maybe their loved ones becomes unwell again, accesses mm-hmm. hospital. So they'll come in again And for counselling. They may do some of the other programs around assertiveness, learning how to be, assert themselves more, uh, a grief and loss workshop. We've got stress management. Uh, we've even got one around coping with Christmas because that sounds mm, a very difficult time. But Christmas, we find that with the dual diagnosis, some families, their loved ones, if they're not on medication, they might be self-medicating. So they will be turning to drugs and alcohol to to manage their lives. So this is where a
0: lot of family members find it a real struggle. Christmas, it is, unfortunately, seems to be the time of the year when it's their lowest point, mm. So obviously they br- sort of bring down the rest of the family?
3: Well, I think it's the way that families cope. We have a coping skills workshop that we run for family members to learn different ways to cope. And even at that time of year, they've got to look at things around how they communicate with their loved one. And we find that by using you statements, which is around blaming, and, and this is just not in families with mental illness, I think a lot of people need to learn that there is a way to communicate if you want to connect with a person that you really care for to use more of i statements to talk about i feel instead of well you make me feel this way so we teach them uh, around how to communicate with their loved one how to understand disturbing behavior how to work with mental health in, with having a relationship with mental health professionals like their gp psychiatrist mm-hmm. and i know there's a lot around the privacy act but there there's ways to manage and ways to have more coping skills in regard to Having a loved one with an illness, and these are the kind of things that we tap into with family members.
0: Do you bring the the person who has the illness? Do you, do they ever come to a Raphi meeting?
3: Now we find that we we would love to. We'd love to have families, but our service is we only have limited funding. We only have limited staff, so we work with the carers because we find that when we're running group programs, carers are able to open up more and talk about how they feel. Mm. Now that for the the clients, they, uh, consumers, they need to have places themselves where they can go and access help. And then we need a place where, I suppose, family loved ones can come together. Where this is the mental health teams, and uh, they will work with families. But for us, now we we just mainly work with the carers.
0: Do they ever feel if they, someone comes to a rafme? Do their their loved ones ever feel that they're being excluded? Can this add to their their problems, or is it something they can work through with with the carer? Well, as far as the roughly goes, we send out newsletters
3: uh, every couple of months and we know that families read them and we do put in poetry from, from actually the people with the illness. We try mm. to bring in a lot of other stories as well. The person with the illness is more than welcome to come in and have a cup of tea. Chris comes in regularly, and Arafmi has organized the March in Mental Health Week, which we, yeah, we're yeah, we about breaking down stigma, really getting into sort of breaking down some of these attitudinal beliefs that are out there in the community. So we want everyone to come on board there. But the families, we talk to them, and they know what Arafmi is, and that we are there to help their loved one, which actually takes the pressure off them, mm. so by working with the family members, because in families there's a lot of emotional intensity, and a lot of um, a lot of times this emotion needs to be worked with. So they're in a much um, healthier place to be able to love and care. Uh, you mentioned about a march. Tell me about the march. Well we had the march last year and it was a a very positive event and Chris is sitting here now going yes I can see his hand just as it was it was excellent it was a really fantastic day. We had about 250 people marching and we had about 300 at the forum in Civic Park afterwards. We have a lot of speakers in uh, from political experiential and service providers they're involved as well and the carers so they all have an opportunity well it's it's, it's structured, but they have a chance to listen to the stories of, um, of people. This then is it's really helping the community to come together and become aware of how this is not going to just start in a service or with individuals. We really need to come together to break down some of these attitudes. This year we're hoping to have about 500 people marching. So anyone that's listening to this, this week and would love to get involved, it's, uh, we start in Pacific Park at 10am on uh, Saturday morning the 14th of October and we'll be marching all the way down through, through the mall into Hunter Street, left into Derby Street and then into Civic Park for a forum which will begin around 11 o'clock. And people are, can make their own banners, come with um, yeah, anything. It's not a march around um, a political march, it's more about public awareness. So it's bringing families, children, everyone together and we find that this is a really vital part of healing. For, and as Chris said before, it made him feel so much taller because he was able to work with his own internal feelings
0: around stigma. Joanne, thank you for coming in. Good luck with your march. And uh, I'm sure it will be a, a success because I think the public are becoming more aware of mental illness and what it involves. I just hope that it doesn't rain. If it does, we'll still be there. Thank you so much, Iris. Joanne Sinclair has closed the program for today. You've been listening to Wellbeing. And this is Iris Nichols on behalf of all of the team saying thank you for listening and stay well.